The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludi. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. I was thinking this morning as we were worshiping, and I was thinking about a Christian in life's most challenging circumstances. And I was thinking of a concentration camp. And so if any of you could just have a mental picture of a Jewish concentration camp. I know it's not a positive thought, but a Christian in a Jewish concentration camp dressed in some drab pajama-like clothing, uh, shaved head, you know, so for all you women, you get to imagine having your head shaved, uh, and completely treated as lower than the lowest creature on earth. You are spurned, you are spat upon, you are slapped around, you are hated, you are threatened with death. What should come out of a Christian in such a moment? Should a long moaning sigh emit and usher forth? What is it that should come out of us in such a moment? Leslie was saying something this weekend to the girls, we were at a girls conference. And she was talking about two elderly women that she once met when she was working in a nursing home. And she basically, one was named Dolly, and I think she forgot the name of the other one. And you'll understand why she forgot the name of the other one. But the, Dolly was an older lady, I think in her 90s, and she was frail as can be, but less, as Leslie describes it, she was utterly beautiful. Just a plain woman, you know, she was like a school teacher growing up, and just a woman, you know, that had maybe five kids and... She was just sort of your everyday woman, but she glowed, and there was a radiance that ushered forth out of her. Why? She spent her life loving Jesus and loving others, and when all the externals melted away, what was on the inside came out, and so Leslie was so mesmerized by this woman. She was like, when I get to be 90, I want to look just like that. And then she went into another room, and God was sort of creating a direct contrast for her. There was this lady that no one wanted to help. Uh, she was cantankerous. She was mean as, you know, all get out. Everything was wrong. Her food was wrong. Her bedding was wrong. Her clothing was wrong. She was mad at the world. Up on her uh, banister, she had this picture of her when she was in her young 20s. And she was like this supermodel. Uh, I don't think they stood like that back in the 1920s. I'm not sure how they stood. But, uh, you know, she, she was this glamour queen. She had spent her life on externals, on looking right on the outside. And on the inside, she never invested. And so when all melted away on the outside, because she wasn't attractive anymore in her 90s, She was withered, and she lacked any vibrancy. And what was on the inside? There was nothing but ugliness. And so when she was 90, what came out of her life? Ugliness. And which would you choose to be around? Well, every single one of us wants to gravitate towards the radiant, beautiful one. Most of us in our life as Christians, we have a tendency to think about what a Christian is supposed to be like. And we want to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And a lot of our thoughts have a tendency to be more external, what people see, what they perceive. And so the reason I was thinking about this concentration camp is because when all is stripped away from you, when you are beaten down into a pulp, what will come out of you? 
Because if you truly stand for Jesus Christ, this is a probable future. It's a future where you will be tested and tried to find out what is truly inside of you. And can you imagine in a concentration camp situation where you are beaten down, you are slapped about, you are spat upon, you are given no hope of survival, and yet what comes out is love and joy. I remember hearing about Betsy Tenboom. Did you guys ever read uh, The Hiding Place? I love that book. Uh, Betsy Tenboom, Corey Tenboom is the one that wrote the book. Betsy was her sister who died in the concentration camp. Uh, this is in the World War II. You know, the, the, they, were, they had supported the Jews. They weren't even Jews. Uh, they were Dutch, but they had helped the Jews, and so they got thrown into a, a concentration camp, and Corey's dad died in the concentration camp, and so did her sister. But her sister, what a, an amazing picture. She was being beaten by a, a German officer, and all she did, her entire attitude was love towards him. She felt, she ached for this man who didn't know Jesus. And then she wanted to pray for him. Corey is so upset at this German officer who was beating up her sister. And her sister's like, no, we need to pray for him. We need to love him. We need to serve him. What is coming out of our life? And so many of us, here we are in upscale America. We have everything. And yet oftentimes we have this somber look on our face. We are being tested in the most smallest ways compared to this concentration camp illustration I'm giving you. And yet there is no joy. There is no life. There's no vibrancy. I'm not saying that's just a blanket statement over all of us. I'm just saying, think about it. What's wrong with us? This is our privilege to exude the life of Jesus. And if you're not exuding it now, how much more difficult is it going to be to exude it when everything is stripped away from you? Imagine that you came home this afternoon. Your house has been ransacked. Uh, you know, they, they'd formed some, the UN formed some type of uh, committee to destroy all Christians and to, you know, go into their private uh, environments and steal things, you know, that could incriminate them to show that they're Christians and they're followers of, uh, of, a, of a God. And religion is a crime against humanity, so we need to wipe this, this uh, scourge off the face of the earth. You come back, your house is ransacked. What's your immediate emotion? Is it joy that you have been counted amongst the Christians? Are you actually happy that all your stuff has been stolen from you? You know exactly what your emotion is. You feel violated, you're upset, you're mad, you're looking for the next election because you want to vote someone different in. As opposed to realizing this is Christianity. We know that we're going to be treated this way. And when we are treated this way, what is our response? We have the privilege of responding differently than this world responds. Everyone responds that way. That's the given. Everyone takes personal offense. It's an affront. Their pride is pricked. That's mine. That's my personal property. They ask for this. Are you willing to also give them your car that you drove back from church? It's like, hey, guys, before you leave, take my car too. Well, who's stupid enough to do that? A Christian. Christians are supposed to be built according to a different model. It's the model of heaven. And Jesus, when he was stripped naked, when he was turned into a pulp, it was a joy that was set before him. He was doing it for something greater than his personal satisfaction. He was doing it for the glory of his Father in heaven. And we do this very thing for the glory of our Jesus. 
Our attitude is to be different. And so my simple challenge, this isn't my message, but it'll, I'll weave it in. <laughs> my simple challenge is this. Let's be robust in our joy. Let's be the happiest people on planet Earth, not because we should be, but because we can be. We have all of Jesus Christ available to us. And I don't care how difficult your circumstances are. You have all of Jesus available to you. It's like, you need more? Ask for more. He's all there. And it's for you. The purchase of the cross is to make a highway from God to you so that there is no impediment and all of God could reach all of us. And so that we can be transformed and built into something different than this world. We have a tendency to showcase the same attitudes, the same mindsets as the world around us. And that isn't Christianity. Christianity is built differently. So let's allow that to happen in our life. All right, let's uh, get to the message. The work of the believer. Now, I don't know if you see a word in this title that is supposed to be rather offensive in Christianity. I see it. All I have to do is glance up at the title and I see it. It's the second word in, just to give you a hint. It starts with a W. The work of the believer. What? Eric, are you saying that we're supposed to work? We don't work as Christians. God works. We don't. Did you, did you follow me on that? In other words, are you saying that we are saved by works? I didn't say that. I said the work of the believer. Did you know that in the Bible it clarifies that if your life is not actively working for God, then what you have is false in your spiritual life. Now, that's an ironic statement considering we are so scared and afraid of legalism in the church of Jesus Christ today. No, we, that's works. That's works-based Christianity. We can't do that. We don't lift a finger. If we lift a finger to do anything for Jesus, then that's legalism. That is preposterous. This is not how the kingdom of heaven works. No pun intended. The work of the believer. I want to introduce you to the idea, the infrastructural thought pattern for how we are to live our life as Christians. We have a job to do. Could you imagine if you were hired? You were hired to do a job and you sat there all day long and twiddled your thumbs and said, yeah, I'm actually not supposed to be working. Well, you'd lose that job fairly quickly. You are employed by the king of kings. If I were to go through the, the gospel and all its different points, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You are saved from the problem of sin. You are invited in to the very near presence of your almighty God. You are adopted as his child. And then you are commissioned unto a job, a very real job, and that is to represent the nature and the image and the truth of the king of kings to this earth. You have a job to do. Now, there's another key element to the gospel that I didn't give in that list, and that's the one that sort of puts this whole message together, and that is that you're not just sent out with a job that is impossible because, by the way, to represent the king of kings and to bear his image and his nature is absolutely ridiculously impossible. Try and love like Jesus loves. Just try and whip it up. Try and whip up some joy of Jesus. It's like, okay, I'm going to be joyful. It doesn't work that way. 
How about perfect peace? An absolute calm of soul, no matter if mountains are crumbling to the sea around you. Try it. It doesn't work. We're not built for that. That isn't how we naturally pop out of the human womb. But how we pop out of the spiritual womb, if you will, is we are given all that is needed for life and godliness. And that's the crowning jewel to the gospel, which I just gave you a list. Deal with the penalty of sin, deal with the problem of sin, an invitation to the very near presence of God, an adoption as a child, a commission unto the very work of God on earth. You have the privilege of representing God. He says, I'm sending you out as a sheep among wolves. We say, I'll do it. He says, do you know it's impossible? I do. I don't care. I'll die for you. I'm willing to do whatever. He says, before you go, there's one thing that you need. I'm going with you. You give me your body, I'll take it over, and I will do the work in and through you. The great mystery of Christianity is us yielding our lives and our bodies and the living God of the universe inhabiting this body and doing work in and through us. The work of a believer is exactly that. And I'm going to explain this at a deeper level because I want to make it practical and not just theoretical. Okay, John 6 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. All right, now, I've just given you this great commission. Go into the world, preach the gospel, disciple the nations. Train them in who Jesus Christ is. And then live unspotted from the world. Visit the orphan and the widow in their distress. You know how many things I could add to this list? There is a massive amount of things that the Christian is supposed to be doing. And Jesus simplifies it down to this little piddly, diddly squat statement. Let me, let me read it for you again. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. This is a better way of saying it. This is the business of God that you are being employed in. This is his operation. This is how his corporation works. That you believe on him whom he hath sent. So we're like, okay, I'm ready to work for you, Jesus. He says, you want your job description? We're like, yes. Tell me to do anything. Send me anywhere. Do whatever you want. He says, I need you to believe and and what else that's it that's what I want you to do you know the hardest thing you'll probably ever do in life is what I just said right there believe do you believe your God to be exactly who he says he is because if you do your life will look dramatically different than this world so I know that that line sounds very basic because most of us when we hear the word believe we think it means mental assent it's like Okay, did Jesus Christ die 2,000 years ago on a cross? And we'd be like, uh, yeah, sure. And then we would call that belief. It's a historical idea that it happened and we agree with it, like a true-false test. Well, that's not what belief is. I want to explain what belief is because this is your job description. Your job description is not to go to China and to rescue the orphans. Your job is not to go to Guatemala and save the lost. Your job is to believe. This is the work of the believer is to believe, which makes sense, don't you think? But 
because we don't know what the word believe means, we oftentimes misconstrue our job description. We come up with all sorts of things to fill in the gap. So let's explore this. There's our key word, ergon. It's actually a really nice word. In fact, I'm thinking this could be a good word for a good name for a little boy at some time, ergon ludi. Uh, it sort of sounds like Aragon, uh, Aragorn, uh, and uh, Aragon. It's a heavenly thing done on earth, the noblest, most perfect work. This is what everyone is afraid of. We don't want to be saved by works. This is what we are supposed to be marked by on, on earth, that we are doing a heavenly thing on earth that the most noble and most perfect work is being accomplished in and through our lives. Ergon. It's a critical word. So I'm going to build on this word, okay? Because it's not just once in Scripture. This is a common thing throughout the New Testament. What the gospel has accomplished is a passageway or an entrance or like a key that enables us to actually accomplish this for the first time. Because... Before Jesus Christ, we could attempt in our own strength and our own right-handedness to, to do ergon, but we would always fail. Now suddenly the cross has made a way for us to accomplish ergon. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith. Now you'll notice this is James 2, 18, 20, and 26. This is a combination. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy ergon, thy work, thy heavenly work, and I will show thee my faith by my ergon. But wilt thou know, O vain man, what that faith without ergon is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without ergon is dead also. This is no small thing. This is the essence of evidence of the Christian life, that there has been a transformation the result is ergon. This heavenly work begins to emit forth and usher forth from our life and it's demonstration to the earth that there is a God alive in you. God's work. Okay, let's clarify between the, in this whole issue of God's work and our work. Because when someone says God is the one that must do the work, the work of salvation is God's work. And when we work, that means we're trying to get God out of the way and we try and save ourselves. Well, that's not actually true, even though that is true for some people, which is where the whole debate comes in. Is there are some people out there that want to curry God's favor and want to gain approval from God. And so instead of coming to the cross and accepting it as a free gift that God did the work for them, they want to come in and live perfectly and, and show God all the spit and polish on their life and say, see God, I'm enough, aren't I? But their righteousness is as filthy rags before God. They can't perform God's righteousness. The only one who can perform righteousness is God. And so there is a work that only God can do. There is an ergon that must be accomplished by God in order that we would be able to accomplish the ergon that is appropriate for us as men and women to be accomplishing. And so let's talk about and let's distinguish between the two works, God's work and man's work. Okay, what is God's work? Well, his work, and is my summary for it, is to be all in all. Well, that's a pretty big job description. 
He's to be all in all, as it says in Colossians 3.11. He's to save, to rescue, to help, to supply, and to feed. He's our savior, our helper, our shepherd, our keeper, our feeder. Our meat, our drink, our Passover, our resting place, our peace. And then, if that isn't a big enough job description for God, he is to heal, make whole, restore, and redeem. Okay, in other words, God is, has a lot on his shoulders here. So here we are saying, God works and we work. What does God do? Well, he does everything. Uh, he's to heal, make whole, restore, and redeem. He's our physician, our healer, our restorer, our redemption. And then he also needs to rule, to govern, to decide, and to command. He's our portion, our maker, our husband, our Lord, master, our leader, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. And then, if that's not enough, he needs to refine, to train, to discipline, to teach, to comfort, and to counsel. He's our refiner, our purifier, our teacher, our example, our hope, our servant. Okay, so we've gone through God's work, which is basically everything. God does it all. And then it comes to our Aragon, because our Aragon is very important. We have a work to do. The believer's work is to prove that he is the all in all. That's our job. He's all in all. He's done the work. He's made it happen. And then God gives us us an assignment. We're like, okay, do you want me to be all in all too? No, you can't be all in all. That's God's job. But you can prove that I'm your all in all. That's our job is to demonstrate to the heavenlies that he is our all in all, that we have nothing outside of him. That's Christianity. You take this life and you yield it. And you say, you deserve it. You bought it. Take over. Be my all in all. And by allowing Jesus Christ to be our all in all, we are doing the work that we are called to do. And if you haven't noticed this, that is the hardest thing you could ever do. Why? Because you have a propensity to want to claim your own life. You want to be in control of your own life. You want to be your all in all. You want to be the one who is responsible, the one who gets the credit for the good deeds you do. And God says, you want to do this right? You want to work for me? You let me be your all in all. Your job is to believe, is to let God have his rightful place. And that's your daily job, minute by minute. God, have me. The next minute, what do you do? God, have me. God, lead me. God, show me. God, speak through me. It's not your words. It's not your compassion. It's not your joy. It's not your peace. It's his. Every moment of every day flowing through you, your job is to be a conduit, to turn to your God and say, use me, do it through me. It's you that must save this earth, not me. Our job isn't to rescue, isn't to redeem. It isn't to be the ones that solve all the ills on planet earth. We can't heal, but we know the healer. And as we yield our life to that healer, he heals People around us, why? Because we're healers? He's the healer. That's how it works. We are the conduits of his mighty power and grace. So there's your job. So, you you know, you've been employed, you've been recruited. It's like, okay, I have a job for you. Prove. Prove 
that God is the all in all of your life. And if you do that, the world will turn upside down. It's like, doesn't it seem a little more clear to be called to China? It's like, well, I'm called to China. God can still give you that job description. When you yield your life to him and you make this your priority, God, take me, use me. He can say, okay, go to China. But your job is still proving that he's your all in all. It's, it's believing. It's allowing him to be God in your life. So this is a summary. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. To believe. To believe is the art of Christian doing. Christians are supposed to do something. We are not supposed to just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for heaven. It is not dangerous to do. The only danger in doing is when you are doing it in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own love, in your own compassion, in your own wisdom. Your own compassion, your own ability, your own wisdom, all that list I just gave you is futile. It is nothing. It will make no difference on this world. It is filthy to God. It is your own righteousness. It's the way you think it should be. But God says, I'm the only one that can make you as you ought to be. And so let me have your life and let me do it in and through you. So the art of Christian doing, there's, there's five points to this. Knowing, reckoning, presenting, exerting, and obeying. Okay, so believing is somewhat of a multi-layered idea. It's not just passing a true-false test and being able to agree that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and he ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's not just knowing that in your head. Satan knows it in his head. Knowing it in your head isn't what does the saving work of grace within your life. This is the action of believing. If you believe, then these five things are active and working in your life. Okay, so let's go through them. First of all, knowing. Let's go through each one of them as an individual thing. The knowing. In Romans 6, and that's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through Romans 6, because each of these five things are demonstrated in Romans 6. Romans 6 is an incredible enunciation of the cross of Jesus Christ, of what we are called to believe in. And so let's look at Romans 6 and let it unwrap for us what these five things are. The knowing. Know ye not that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You have to know it to be able to respond to it. Can't tell you how many Christians, that little list of what I just went through, they don't even know it. And it's sort of hard to respond to something when you don't know it. I think I gave this illustration when I was, I was talking about the blood of Christ uh, quite a few weeks ago in here. And I was talking about uh, some type of uh, you know, fireman's 
uh, barbecue. Like say the, the Windsor Fire Department, you know, hosted some hot dog and burger barbecue. And they gave a free invitation to anyone in the community that wanted to come and they could have a free hot dog or hamburger. Now, if you never hear about it, and if you don't know that it's happening, guess what? You will not have a free hot dog or a free hamburger churning in your digestive tract. Because you didn't know about it, you couldn't respond to it. As Christians, the believing starts with knowing. We must know these things to be true. We must hear them and be able to process through and say, I hear it, I know it. Okay? So this is how it starts, the knowing. This is one-fifth of believing, though. The reckoning. The reckoning, and I've walked through this with you guys many times before, but it's, a, it's an accounting term, which basically says, I recognize it, I know it, and now I account it, or I, I reckon it into my account as true. If... God has given you $1,000. You take it, you know you have $1,000, and then you put it in your account as fact. You actually write it in the ledger. It's true to you. You take it as truth. You don't take it as an idea or a theory. It's truth. And if someone says, how much is in your account? You say, well, I have $1,000 in my account. And you live as if you do have 1000 You know if you have $1,000 in your account, and someone says, yeah, you need to write a check for 500 you feel confident doing it. But if you don't believe that that $1,000 check is real, and someone says, yeah, you need to write a $500 check, guess what? You don't trust that 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 $1,000 is really there, and you don't have the confidence to write the check. If you know that something is true, you act upon it. You're able to perform in life in accordance with that reality. Do you believe that Jesus has done this for you? Because if you do, you begin to move forward with confidence that it is accomplished. You must know it, and then you must reckon it as so. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The presenting. The word in the, the, in the, in the translation I'm using here is yield instead of present. But you look up the word yield in Romans 6, and it's, it's a better idea because yield makes it sound like you're allowing just something to come in, which is part of the idea. But presenting also means giving. It's a laying down of your life before Jesus Christ. I think it's a fuller, more richer understanding of it. Neither present ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We must know it, then we must reckon it as fact, and then we offer If you know that Jesus Christ has done this for you, if you recognize that when he died, his death was for you, if his death was for you and when he died, you died, and sin no longer has control over you, it's not just the penalty of sin, but it's the problem of sin. And you're like, well, I'm not experiencing that in my life. My experience is testifying otherwise. You haven't reckoned it. You reckon this as fact. And you begin to live accordingly. And the next step in believing is if you believe this is true, that God has added this to your account, then you lay your body before him and you say, take it. Take my life. Believing isn't just passing a true false test. It is responding. It is an action. It is a doing. It is giving our life over to Jesus saying, take it. You bought it. You purchased it. Have it. It's yours. So the knowing, the reckoning, And the presenting. 
There's two more. Oh, this is still part of the presenting. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have presented your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now present your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. The exerting. So we have the knowing, we have the reckoning, and we have the presenting, and the exerting. There is an action of soul that is needed to act and to exert and to move forward. There has to be some rumbling and stirring within you that says, I'm taking it. I'm going after it. Christianity is not passive. Believing is not passive. It is active. If you see that, for instance, you know that there is a cheeseburger or a hot dog down the road and you're hungry, Some of you need to know this. When it comes to your sin, and you're like, I'm sick and tired of this behavior. If you know that there's freedom right down the road, if you know that they have made available a cheeseburger and a hot dog and your stomach is growling and there is a sense of need, it's not just saying, yeah, I know it's down there. It's not just reckoning it as a fact that, yes, if I went down there, I would have a cheeseburger. It is actually getting in the car and exerting a forward movement, presenting, getting in, putting your foot on the gas, going after it, taking what God has purchased. There is an exerting and there is an action of soul to reach out and take, open up your mouth and bite down. Exert. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. So let me give you a, a better description in the Greek of what let not is. To let not, to exert and exercise the highest influence, to control a matter with decisive dominance. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. No! It's not happening anymore. Jesus rules here. To exert and exercise the highest influence. Paul actually says, exert. Exercise the highest influence over sin. You have the authority given you by Jesus Christ. Don't back down and don't be pushed around by it. Do you believe? Don't just know it. Don't just reckon it. Don't just present, but exert. Exert against what the enemy has done in your life exert the authority and the power and the position of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he has done it for you? Then show it in your life. The obeying. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. We have a job to do as believers. And that is we need to believe. And when you believe, you don't just know something to be true and pass it on a true-false test. Okay, now, I don't know if you can understand that's how most of Christianity works today. Oh, I believe. You believe and your life is an absolute wreck. You believe that God is your joy and he's your peace and he's your love and he's your triumph and your life is a wreck. 
So there's something missing here because belief stopped at the knowing. It was never reckoned as fact in their life. And then it was never a presenting of giving over our life to Jesus Christ to say, take it, have it, and fill it, house me. And then to actually exert ourselves in a response to God and exert his dominance and exercise his kingly authority over all darkness that surrounds us and is attempting to invade our life. No! Out! You have no place here anymore. This is the habitation of God Almighty. I belong to Jesus Christ and not to darkness, not to sin. Out! And then to obey. When God asks you, He's your master. He's the owner of the business. He purchased your body. You are no longer your own. You are bought with a price. And he says, will you obey now? Will you step forward? Will you live this way? Not just go after the cheeseburger once down the street, but every moment of every day, you believe, you act, you obey. You are a bondservant. Your ear is pierced. You have returned to your master and said, I love you. Thank you for setting me free. I want to serve you for my life. And now your master has your ear, which means whatever he asks of you, you instantly obey. You're agreeing ahead of time before he even makes the request. You say, yes. And then everyone around you can say, he didn't even ask you anything yet. No, no, I'm just saying yes before he asks me. Yes. It's a predecided yes to your God. Whatever his word says, it's yes. Yes, Lord. And whatever he asks, no matter the pain, no matter the difficulty, no matter what happens to all your belongings, no matter what happens to all your bank accounts, no matter what happens to your physical body, if you're thrown into a concentration camp, the answer is yes, live through me. Show your love through me. Show your joy through me. Show your life through me. Prove to this earth what a believer looks like, that God can change a life. That's our job is to allow him to be the all in all, is to showcase to the world that he is the all in all, not just for you, but for everyone. That's our job. I know it sounds rather simple, but it's rather complicated when you live in this earth because there's nothing that's gonna help you down this road. Those five things that I just said, everything on earth is against that. There is nothing that is going to aid and abet your forward growth as a Christian. That's why the church is needed. And that's why we need God. We need each other to support each other. That's why we gather, actually. This isn't a time just to share the gospel. This is a time for us to be exhorted to go out there and demonstrate that Jesus is our all in all and be magnets of the Spirit of God where people are coming up to us and saying, I need what you have. Well, let me tell you about it. You shouldn't even have to just take them to church. You should have the answer in your life and be able to introduce them to the king of kings. The only ergon that matters, a love-laboring faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Faith is the essence of what we are talking about as a believer. The work of the believer is to believe. Belief is faith. That's the essence of it. What I just described to you in those five things is the action of one who has faith. If you believe God is who he says he is, you hear it, you know it, you reckon it as fact, 
you present your body before him, you exert and you say, let not. I believe that I actually have a position in the heavenlies. I have the authority of the name of Jesus backing me up. And then you step forward in obedience. That's faith. It's actually believing something that is not even a credible thought down here on earth. You know that such behavior is lunacy to this world? Why? Because they can't see it with their, with their senses. They can't see it with their eyes. They don't hear it with their ears. You say, oh, I believe in God. And they look around and say, I don't see God. I don't smell God. I don't taste God. He's all around us. I, I speak to him every day. I know him intimately. That's the life of faith. The life of faith is able to see past the barrier of the natural realm into the supernatural realm and see it clearly. I see the supernatural realm clearly, not in a physical sense where I have a vision, but I know it's there. I walk with God daily. If someone comes up to me and says, God's a joke, he's not real. I mean, that to me is a joke. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. And, you know, my first job is to talk to them and to straighten them out because they're the one that's messed up, not me. It's clear to me. I'm not wobbly. I'm not wavering on the fact that God exists, that God is who he says he is, that the word of God is concrete truth and fact. I know it. That's faith. That's confidence in who God is and what God said. We build our life upon it. But that faith must express itself in love. That's the ergon that matters. It's not just a belief that goes out there and starts hammering people over the head. It's a belief that is so rock solid in the fact that God has called us, that God is who he is, that he is the all in all, that he has changed our life. And then we go out in the very nature of God to demonstrate this faith through love. And we love this word. Remember Betsy Tenboom in the concentration camp? She's being beaten up, but she knows her position. She knows the reality of the universe around her. She knows her soul state. And she can respond and say, this man doesn't know Jesus. She's not consumed with her own plight and her own need. She's beyond that to see something more valuable. She sees Jesus' agenda in this situation. And Jesus says, this man, I love him. Faith expressing itself in love. Because you know your position. You know that he is all in all. You know that he's in control. And so no matter what you're going through, you have the freedom to love and to think of others more than yourself, to consider their need instead of the fact that they just ransacked your house. I remember hearing about this one guy who had a, some type of lumber yard and you know, he sold firewood. And these people came in, backed up their pickup uh, to his lumber and were piling up their pickup, stealing it in the middle of the night. And he was just checking on something. I don't remember what he was there for. And he saw them stealing it and he got in and was helping them load up the, the truck. And they're like, Who, who's this guy? But he was helping them so they didn't uh, argue with it. And then uh, as they were leaving, he's like, is there anything else you need for my lot? Uh, as they were taken off, and they're like all shocked. And uh, I don't remember the end of the story, but that's just sort of a behavior pattern that is completely opposite. Now, I know most of us wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't do that, maybe, but the point is, it's a different wiring. It's not one that is looking to just maintain and preserve our world, but it is one that is considering the promotion of everyone else's situation and wealth around us. We aren't concerned with us. We have faith that is expressing itself in love. We believe. We believe he is everything that we need. We are satisfied. But this world is dying. So Lord Jesus, help them through me. 
For in Jesus Christ, neither... I just, oh, this is just a, a, the other way of saying that. When it, when it says, but faith which worketh by love. That worketh word, listen to what it is in the Greek. But faith operated, empowered, and energized by love. Isn't that a great statement? That's what matters. Faith, the fuel for all true ergon. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Remember in James how it was saying that you have a faith without ergon. I will show you my faith by my ergon. That's the evidence of ergon, or that's the evidence of faith. If you have true faith, then your life begins to demonstrate through heavenly work, heavenly behavior, heavenly action. You are about the Father's business. There's a job to be done here. There's weak around you. Well, you're focused on them. There's dying. Well, you're going to help them. That's faith expressing itself through love, energized and empowered by love. You are not about you. You are about him and his agenda, and you are demonstrating that your God can take a self-centered man or woman and turn them completely upside down, change them and turn them outward. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If you don't have this belief, see, I mean, Jesus says this is the work of God, to believe on him who was sent. To believe, to have faith. And without that, it's impossible to please God. It is as basic as you need to know it, you need to reckon it, you need to present, you need to exert, and you need to obey. This is what pleases God. This is the entry into the fullness of his life. There is no other way. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. What's this faith built upon? When I say that you need to believe in Jesus Christ, am I saying believe in an illusion, believe in a fairy tale? Yeah, but I know it's not credible, and I know it's ridiculous what I'm asking you to believe in. It's all a farce. It's all some mystical thing, you know, some tall tale. Is that what this is? Is this a tall tale? I would present it to you as fact. It is fact. If we laid out a map of the, of the, of the, the world, so this nice flat representation of the globe, and I said, there is Russia. It's right there. It's fact. It's not my opinion on the matter. It's not like I came up with it. That's the way the word of God is. It's a map for truth. It has been proven over ages and generations. It has been tested I can't tell you how many nations have tried to quash it and remove it from the earth because it's an an indictment upon their sin and their selfishness. And they cannot remove it from the earth. God wins all the time. He does not lose his battles. And his truth will remain. And not one dot or tittle will be removed from it all the way through to the end of the age. Our God has spoken And it is not the word of men, it is the word of God. It is his opinion, and he has defined truth, and we simply say, you're right, God. He is faithful that is promised. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised.
the gospel of the grace of God. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, this is Paul speaking, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul wants to finish the race and he wants to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel is known in various terms throughout the New Testament. The gospel of the kingdom is one of the common terms, most common. But in this one spot, it is actually called the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is oftentimes known as the apostle of grace. For many of us, the idea of grace is a hug from God. It's like we're a mess We're living in our misery and in our sin, and God comes up and just sort of hugs us and accepts us in that state. It's a part truth. The fact that we are living in misery and in sin is true, and it's also true that in that state, God reaches out to enfold us. But here's the thing that's missing. Grace is not just a hug from God. It is the enabling power of God to change and alter a human life. If we as humans are going to demonstrate that Jesus is the all in all, you need something. And that isn't human grit and willpower and determination. It's not just hard work. It's not just getting up at four in the morning and studying your Bible and praying for seven hours. It's grace. You need grace to accomplish the errands that God has called you to go on. God has given you a job description and your job description is utterly impossible. You need to be bearers of the nature and the image of Jesus Christ to all the world. Good luck. Go try it. You will fail. But God has given us all the equipment we need for life and godliness. Everything that is needed, and that's the gospel of the grace of God. It's the good news of the impartation of grace that God has given us all that we need, the power, the life, the very indwelling presence of God. We can't love like God loves, but God living in us can love because he's God and he is love. And so if we allow him to be in us, to be the ruler in us, to be the governor in us, to be the captain of our souls, and we simply say, do it, he loves through us. It's not our love. It's his love at large within us. You try and be humble as God is humble, you'll fail. But you say, God, come into me. And you demonstrate your humility. You give me your wisdom. Not my wisdom. I don't need my wisdom. I need your wisdom. I want the mind of Christ. Not my human ridiculous mind that thinks thoughts errant from you and your ways. I need your mind. Train me. Build me in accordance with this pattern so that I can be the house of God. So that you could come and live your life in and through me. God's work to do everything. Your work to allow him to do everything. We as humans naturally resist God being everything for us. It's humbling. We like to prove and demonstrate to ourselves and to this world around us that we are sufficient outside of God and that's what kills us. But if you want victory and if you want triumph, let God do his work in and through you. And that is your work. If that sounds utterly simplistic and way too basic, and it's just like, well, I would have known that. Yeah, I mean, I would have seen that sometime sooner. 
That's Christianity. And for whatever reason, the enemy works so hard to obscure this exact point. And so what he says, either one way or the other, is, no, God has done all the work, you have no work to do. And so we do nothing. And we live fat, happy, sinful lives under the banner of grace. God hugging us and just getting us into heaven. It's false. It's not how Christianity works. Or, on the other end, well, you have a job to do. You better figure out how to do it. It's impossible. It doesn't matter. God commissioned you to do it. He said, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Love as he loves. You better do it. We're like, oh, I don't know how. And we fail and we fail and we fail, but we try our best. We grit our teeth. We spend our every moment of our life aching and agonizing over the fact that the standard is so high and we can't uphold it. False. Both extremes are wrong. God does the work. And he's the only one that can accomplish the work. But our job is to allow him to do the work in and through us. That's our job. We do have a job. We do have work to do. And that is our great heavenly ergon. Our assignment is to allow our God to be all in all in us. And when we do, his work is accomplished on earth. His workmanship, his work. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good ergon, good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So who's doing it all here? Who's getting the credit? We have a job to do. We are his workmanship. He's the one responsible for making us anything in the first place. And then he's the one that's prepared the works, the ergon. And he says, all I need is you. Yield. Let me in. Let me have you. And I will do good ergon in and through your life. And this world will behold my nature and my goodness and my grace. And they will behold it in you. You need to know it. You need to reckon it. You need to present yourself unto your God. Then you need to exert the authority of Jesus Christ against all the powers of hell and not allow them to remain in your life. And then whatever he asks you, you have a pierced ear. It's a predecided yes. He owns you. You are his. You are the reward of his suffering. He died for you, for this exact thing to be accomplished in you. So for you to even negotiate in your mind, your smallest little pea brain mind, and say, I don't know, that's asking a lot of me. You have no life outside of this. This is your only hope. You want Jesus Christ? You come to Jesus Christ, not on your terms, on his terms. He says, I need you to die. I need you to relinquish your life. And you will find life. But it's as you relinquish your life that you find it. The work of a believer, to believe. To be marked by faith, to be marked by an assurance, but that assurance and that faith animates itself in an actual Christian doing. You will act in your soul. There is a, sub, there is an, a movement of soul in response, and that is how belief works. So don't be passive in your Christianity. 
I want you to exert. I want you to see a rousing of your soul to say, darkness has no more power here. No more. I am bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. I believe that what he accomplished 2,000 years ago was for me. That when he died, I died. That my old man is no longer in control of me. I believe it. And I'm going to start living as if that's a fact and not fiction. This is what God did. And I want to see it revealed in my life for his glory. And then, guess what happens? You begin to see it revealed in your life for his glory. And then you can't keep your mouth shut. You know why Eric's uh, mouth is constantly yapping about this stuff? Because I've been changed by it. I love this truth. I love Jesus Christ. When you know Jesus Christ, you can't help but yammer about it. This is the greatest news ever. There is hope. There is life to be had. There is joy for the concentration camp that may await us. There is peace for that concentration camp. There is an incredible love for the persecutors that are going to come against you in your life. We have everything we need to walk this life out in absolute triumph and victory. So let's do it. Holy Father, do this in us. May we not just hear it. May we respond to it. Please, Lord Jesus, do what you must do in our lives to carry us forward. That we would be your workmanship and that we would walk in your good works that you've prepared ahead of time for us. Lord, it's so amazing to think that you have prepared Aragon for us. You've prepared the way. You know the steps of obedience that are mapped out before us. You know the people that will be influenced. You know the orphans that will be helped, the unborn that will be rescued. You know the widows that will be visited. Lord Jesus, you see it. You know it. You know what you're doing in our life. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would simply submit and say, do this in and through us. Grace of God, find your home within us. Please empower us, enable us to be Christians, to be Christians that demonstrate the kingdom, the glory of Jesus Christ. We love you, precious King. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellersley.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.